This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got uh, Steve Kurtz on the 3D Pod today. And Steve is, well, he's director of the Implant Research Corps and part-time researcher at Drexel University School of Biomedic- uh, Biomedical Engineering, Science and Health Systems. He also has uh, Gyroid, which is his own uh, consultancy company that you can come to him for all these biomedical uh, implant-related consulting, including if you want to know how an implant works or whether it's up to the up to scratch, or you know, you can hire him as an expert witness in the domain. He's done a ton of research. He's written over ten books, uh, written over two hundred papers uh, in all sorts of medical devices, orthopedics, spinal devices implants and he's done a lot of work on uh such as clinical studies on medical devices and in particular on polymer uh kind of implants uh and additively manufactured polymer implants in the peak family so peak and other similar kind of polymer materials and yeah, he's been doing this for a really really long time and uh, uh brings a lot a lot of expertise uh especially in implantology and especially in polymer implantology so welcome uh welcome steve to the show Thank you. Uh, thanks, Joris and, uh, and Max. This is my first podcast, so I'm really excited to be here. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's very good. So, so first off, I think, I think the most notable thing, I think if we could start with all the other stuff, I think we can go back to the implantology stuff later on, but I think most people in 3D printing are really excited about Peak. <laughs> should they be they are. uh so i think we should just start with the peak family and peak in particular because you know i i have uh, i have clients and they come to they come to me like hey i want peak xyz and i just like and, and i've never had people really request a material unless it's like something like they've been working with for ages but i've never really seen a material whose brand is so stellar and so great and and just because of the properties are there people want to use it for all sorts of stuff but it's finicky it's terrible to work with it's it's um you know difficult crystallization difficult to make large parts so you know especially from a 3d printing viewpoint it's a really difficult material right i completely agree and it's it's ironic because you know peak and its cousins in the peak family are really historically have been considered the polymers of last resort like if nothing else works well then maybe look at look at peak uh because historically it was like the most expensive option when there were many other less expensive polymers to to use for engineering applications well it turns out that in aerospace especially if you carbon fiber reinforce it peak and peck they are awesome they have awesome properties that allow you to replace metal so it's gotten a lot of mileage since the 1970s in aerospace and starting in the 1990s was transitioned into medical devices and it just is a testament to how much how much time and effort it takes to get a new biomaterial established and recognized i mean it's like we're almost like on 30 years now where it's been around and now people are like considering it <laughs> all the time <laughs> it's like potential potential material 
And, you know, we've been working with Peak beforehand. That's one of one of my pet writing projects was I wrote the Peak Biomaterials Handbook. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a, I know quite a bit about Peak. And, and like you said, it is a really painful polymer to do to do for 3D printing because the material, that particular polymer was really designed, that molecule was designed and engineered for injection molding. And so that it would, you know, you inject it into a mold, it would really quickly crystallize and it'll be ready to go. You wouldn't have to fuss with annealing or any of these other things that maybe you'd have to fuss with other polymers. Uh, and it has really outstanding properties for a potential biomaterial in terms of resistance to chemis- you know, chemicals, radiation, like you name it. And it has excellent material properties as well. So yeah, it's also FST, right? So so if you get cremated, it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not going to do some of the same things that yeah, like a can do. What is it specific? Is the crystallization is it crystallizing too quickly yeah. for a traditional three D printer, and that makes it next to impossible to three D print in a traditional? Well, not next to impossible. Just well, no, I'm sorry, I, but it's I, just I, difficult. Difficult. I'm saying painful. <laughs> painful right so but uh, like i think we're now on i would say almost like the third generation of printers that can handle peak uh and these we're talking about fused filament fabrication here or fff or mm-hmm. for folks who like you know like the old school acronyms fdm <laughs> well that's less than uh, that's uh more taboo today but like for basically fff or extrusion based either aerospace or medical. I'm more in the medical area, but it's still used. Uh, it's be, still being investigated highly in both those areas with additive. I think, and if we're looking at FDM for, for well, so first off, it's it's a material. Don't call that, it FDM? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I call it FDM. You get every once in a while, you get an email from somebody at Stratasys, and it's like, hey, how are you guys doing? <laughs> no, it's... it's <laughs> But it also, it, it's a taxonomy. You can tell when somebody joined the 3D printing market depending on what ner- what term they use. So I'm using yeah. the old school term to ingratiate myself and people. People go, oh, well, he knows what he's talking about because yeah. he uses FDF. <laughs> he doesn't yeah, say yeah. FFF. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was a professor. I got to teach people like the modern way of saying oh, right. wow, no. yeah. Material <laughs> extrusion. <laughs> these, these major changes in textbooks. Yeah. Material <laughs> extrusion. Anyway, okay, okay. Material extrusion then. That's, that is the proper way. Okay, we could do it properly. But anyway, so if we're talking about material extrusion, you know, we're we're also seeing that the co- the material is expensive. I mean, you're talking about two hundred to eight hundred dollars a kilo or something like this, depending on what grade or what it's used for. Um, so mistakes are expensive. Um, but we're dealing with this well, this crystallization first off, this quick crystallization. Then we have spotting and a kind of incorrect crystallization with peak as well that we get a lot of like when people print it and then it kind of produces what I call like brown sugar. <laughs> you kind of end up being like, uh, yeah, producing like a really f- expensive failure that kind of collapses. Yeah, um, material. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, when and and then the black spotting is another thing, uh, which you get, and just like the, the warping uh, and anything larger than like a tennis ball or something, like warping is a huge issue as well. So, you know, t- typically I like to think of these problems as all of just not having enough heat management, but I know it's a bit more complicated than that, right? Well, yes, as, uh, I've had two PhDs have done their thesis on this, right? So, uh-huh. one on all the heat transfer stuff, and and then one on printing uh, porous peak. And it's very difficult, but it absolutely can be done. And the latest printers and software absolutely make it much easier to do than it was even a 
two or three years ago, right? So that, that's one of the most incredible aspects of this field that we're in is, especially with high temperature polymers, is the, the technology is really, is really changing very rapidly. Like the first generation, I would say, of, of 3D printer that could print uh, peak is, I would say, two, 2016. And then it's gone through a couple of generations to get to the, the full scale, a printer that you would be happy to have in your operating room floor to print implants well, that could go right. into patients, right? Yeah. So. Is, that, is, is that where it's going, though? Because I hear so many people are like really enthusiastic. I think a lot of stuff, like they're also enthusiastic about printing organs on the thing. But uh, so on the one hand, I think the most doable is material extrusion and a material like peak, right? That's that's something that, that could be doable in a hospital, right? As opposed to like powder bed fusion and all this other stuff you probably don't want in your hospital because mm-hmm. um, it could explode and stuff. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, yeah. Um, and fire, oxygen, and that kind of stuff, also not great. But but so just generally, you know, is, is, do you really see that as happening? I mean, I think, or, or do you think oh, it, there's a lot of... It's, yeah? it's happening now. Jordan, they're in a room. They're not in the surgical room, right? Like they're in some room in the in hospital. A separate room. So yeah. just, again, so point of care 3D printing of implants. I mean, I know there's a ton of point of care 3D printing is a very broad field that includes, as you know, right? You, surgical models. It can include um, instruments or surgical guides. And for me, uh, I'm I'm really focused and interested in 3D printing implants at the point of care. There are examples of where this is being done today in metal, but like you said, those printers are perhaps not located in the hospital, but like next door to the hospital. And in in orthopedics, I say the most famous version or well-known version of this is um, at the Hospital for Special Surgery, where an external company called Lima Corporate has set up a... um, a 3D printing cell embedded in the hospital's uh, Dana Center, which is essentially next door uh, to the hospital in Manhattan. So you want to talk about a committed group taking multiple years to, you know, get the Manhattan Fire Department on board for those little tricky little powder issues that you <laughs> worry about. Uh, and, you know, it won't blow up. The, if it get, catches, if the titanium catches fire, it, it will it'll only burn uh, some labs outside of the hospital and not the hospital itself, but still. And it's also not actually that example. It's it's not actually being managed by the hospital itself. It's being managed by a professional orthopedic implant company that does 3D printing for a living. So that's kind of like, I would say that's that's one model of point of care 3D printing that we're going to see going forward. And it's, it's, it's that, that, that model is alive and kicking in Manhattan today. Um, and then an, another, the other example is kind of at the far end. Oh, we just kind of jumped into this topic, I guess, but that's that's live and well right now. Uh, but for for Peak, it's I'm the the collaborators I'm thinking about are at the University of Basel under uh, Professor Florian Theringer, who is in the Department of Craniomaxillofacial Surgery. So there, right? I mean, you, you can't have a generic face. You really want to have a patient-specific face. Uh, so there is there is a, a lot of, it's like a perfect application of, of uh, making a patient-specific implant. And, and they, they want to do it. The hospital wants to be the, the manufacturer of that implant. I, I get it on the face. I guess I'm more confused on if you're doing like metal printing next door, um, why aren't you just doing metal printing in, in New Jersey? And then having someone ferry it back and forth via car, so to speak. 
Uh, and then you very simple, very simple. Like you want, yeah. like surgeons want to be directly involved, like hands on. They want to be able to see it, and okay. They want to be able to see it. They want to be able to right be part of having it remote. Just means that I mean, well, you know that it's even with. Uh, I even see it in Philadelphia, which is a small city, right? If if people are more than a block away, they might as well be in a different state, right? In terms of <laughs> there's like how proximal do you need to be before you consider it too far to be part to be point of care, right? And and having it not next door is pretty much the way it the way it works. Yeah, the economics. I think the interesting thing about the HSS is is that it's one of the few places in the world where they do so many of the same procedures. And the volume per square foot is insane there. Like like the amount of procedure, I think they're there in terms of TKA and all this kind of stuff, the knee stuff, they're probably the biggest in the world at one one site. Right. Um, and uh, and they, so they, they also do, right. And, and those implants that they do all day, like they do thousands, they don't need to be, they don't need to be patient specific. It's the special surgery that they do, right? The really crazy, um, the really crazy complicated revisions um, the surgeries that are in a, in a patient that is, you know, four feet tall, right. That there aren't normal sizes or, or seven feet tall. There just aren't normal sizes for these patients. So it's, so first for high volume special surgery, which is, there are not many of those places around. It makes a whole lot of sense. And then the other area that it makes a whole lot of sense for is in cancer cancer treatment now that's and that's kind of i'd say is, is a future application for orthopedic uh point of care 3d printing but one that we're we're also we're also interested in okay and then and the cancer stuff just because it could be any shape and the incision and the removal of stuff can be any shape so you're you're, you're going to end up with custom shapes and a really short time frame right and a really short time frame like if you've got metastatic cancer you really aren't that excited to wait six weeks to three months to get your implant. And of course, we're, yeah, in a system, yeah. those are also yeah. people that will pay, right? There's yeah. also uh, on the richer end of the spectrum, I think that that could be a market much ahead of this becoming a market for you know many people in uh, in many other countries. Let's say we 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 okay. So a lot of people are familiar with the the metal implant stuff, the titanium, all this kind of stuff. Why would we use Peak? What's the? Yes, it's a miracle material. It's got really high strength and uh, biocompatible. All this kind of stuff. You know, why would we use Peak? Um, there are a couple of reasons why you'd use uh, use Peak. I, I think the the ones that uh, make a lot of sense are in just replacing metal. People would be happier to have uh, less metal in their body, especially if it's it maybe titanium is is a, is is for sure a safe metal. Uh, but if you're going to be making something out of peak, it's going to necessarily have a lower modulus and perhaps can be more easily engineered to have properties closer to the bone that it's representing, that it's replacing. Uh, the other uh, major advantage of peak is that it is uh, very compatible with medical imaging. So if you're going to do CT or MRI, uh, those are those are much more challenging to do in the presence of a metal implant. In the presence, like for example, near the spine, where you you really do worry about what's going on with the spinal cord, and if you've got a big um, big artifact from the metal there, that's that's less desirable. So that radio op- uh, opacity uh, kind of uh, thing, 
that could be something you could do with another polymer. So in the polymers, are you really like only, is it also still that last resort thing where you're like finding that there's nothing really as strong or what are some of the other, or there's nothing really as strong that is safer in the body or is that the, the reasoning behind that as well? Yeah, it's, it's a really high performing polymer. So it has the kind of mechanical properties that are really well suited for a permanent implant. And as we've talked about before, it has now 30 years of clinical history in the spine. If you came up with the, the Joris polymer that's perfect for implants today, right? So you can count on people and it works. You can count on people really being excited about it in 2050. So <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, good times, right? good times. Right. So like in orthopedics, like there, there are people want to see like 10 years of clinical history before they get convinced that they might want to think about putting it in a, in a person for a long time. And this, these are, this is permanent. Like these are for permanent implantations. As permanent you said. So implants. You're not unlike say PCL where it's designed to degrade in, in your body and then you pass it. Correct. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this would be for example, if you're going to have like a, a skull plate. Um, now the, the other advantage that peak has over uh, over metal, especially in the skull, is that it uh, is not likely to uh, like it has the, the different thermal conduction properties. Which, if you're in Switzerland, they they the patients I'm told complain about the cold. Oh. The, the titanium implant gets really cold. Cold, yeah. Uh, and you don't want to have a really cold piece of metal up against your brain. Really right. You could, you could through induction, you could heat the implant if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Put a little coil on it, you know. Exactly. <laughs> the Yorospiel's implant heater. Yeah, right. The new technology of heat sinks is to cool the brain. Um, so. uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I never thought of that, actually. That's a really interesting thing. I never thought of that, that they needed to be heated. It's very logical. Yeah, no. That is it's it's also I mean people have have um, I mean people are developing a peak knee. This is not for three D printing, but for kind of traditional injection molding to complete to replace the cobalt chromium femoral component. In part because one thing is they they sometimes their their knee feels really cold if there's a big if there's a big chunk of metal in there, yeah. uh, and they stay outside in the winter time for too long. One of the things we've learned to appreciate about the more of the metal implants is the fact that we can adapt the surface structure to get the kind of the, the level of uh, you know bone ingrowth that we want, uh, and we can also adapt the, the the implant to wicking, and we put like you know special uh, properties or lattices in it to kind of reduce stress shearing and stuff. Is that also can we do those things as well with a peak implant, or is there less of a need because we're just closer to the the, the modules as you said? Um, there's less of a need for it, but it's also highly desirable for bone ingrowth to have. A lattice structure where you're going to have a bone uh, bone contact. I would say that that the bone contact is an area where peak is perceived to be not as um, attractive as uh, titanium when it's smooth, but when you make the surface textured and with pores, bone will happily grow into peak just like it grows into into titanium. There was all in the beginning or the beginning for me, the beginning. So it's like 15 <laughs> years ago. Um, there was always told that patient specific uh, implants was going to be the future, right? 
for essentially everyone. And there's these studies that came out that, you know, less blood loss, faster recovery. And I kind of always noticed that there was like representative of the companies making these things on uh, writing these papers. Uh, not always, but a lot of times. And, and so, you know, and I've noticed that there is, I've asked a lot of people about this, about the need for spatial specific implants. And some people are like, no, it's a future for everything. And while other people are like, well, only if we need to. And my own thing is like, what I ask people is always like, you know, can we just have a hundred different sizes? Because if we can have a hundred different sizes, that's totally safer than an infinite amount of sizes, right? Well, true. So I, I think that um, if if you work in healthcare, one thing that you appreciate is the overall trend for reducing cost while improving quality, right? So there is really no, there's really no like these patient specific technologies. It's hard to see how they can become less expensive than kind of pre-sized devices for the vast majority of standard, shall we say, primary cases. Now, when you're doing a, a reconstruction of a failed implant in a revision surgery, or if it's a, if it's a specific case, like no one wants a generic off-the-shelf face, for example, uh, right? You, you want, there are some situations where patient-specific is really the only way you're going to be able to do it. Uh, but if there is, let's say, in hip and knee implants, where there is a couple million of these put in every year, I don't think every. I don't think people realistically think. I certainly don't think that patient-specific implants are going to be made to the tune of like one to three million implants per year, given the you know healthcare uh, pressures with cost and increased quality that we expect to see kind of going forward. But isn't that more of a U.S.-specific problem? Like, I mean, if you go to the UK, the cost dramatically jumps down all of a sudden because it's a national system. Oh, yeah. System. Like in other territories where there's a formal medical system, unlike the United States, um, we can, you know, we'll call it a that, different that pays for a different medical system that, you know, if you can't go into medical debt and all that, um, then the, the pricing is like a different animal altogether. So I wonder if it becomes more competitive faster in, in other markets like in Europe. It may, but it, again, the, the again, given the cost differentials, uh, the the price you have to beat is much lower in in Europe. So that makes at point of Even care harder. additive, yeah. except where it's really, really important and needed, uh, kind of difficult to to justify today. Now, right. maybe I mean this is today, like like I said, and I mentioned before, the field is changing so rapidly. Who knows what joint replacement is going to look like 20, 30 years from now. Maybe by then there, you know, there's artificial cartilage or they've discovered a pill that you can take to prevent you from getting arthritis uh, in the first place. It's difficult to predict what long-term innovation is going to look like, but at least in the, in the short five-year timeframe, it, it seems like just getting point-of-care manufacturing for medical, permanent medical devices more widely recognized and accepted is kind of what we're going to see in the next five years. Yeah. And one thing I think Dale Schwartz, we had him on earlier on the 3D pod as well. And the one thing he pointed out that I had not realized until he said it was the fact that in inventory, these companies have to keep all these sizes in inventory and the cost of quality is so high that they have to keep them all over the world. So their idea of like, you know, making it close to the point of care or close to the order is also an advantage because the initial outlay uh, is less for the implant implant company. So that's another interesting way of looking at the same problem, but from the perspective of like the, the strikers of the world, let's say. Yeah. So for, 
I mean, right now, striker would have uh, a one or or more. Um, let's say they don't have an infinite number of of of. They've very centralized, shall we say, manufacturing. But uh, as shipping becomes more expensive, as like you said, the cost of inventory becomes more expensive. Like strikers of the world, that I'm, I'm including in all, all of its competitors, we you can see perhaps maybe more of a distributed model for manufacturing being at some point makes sense. Shipping has to get really expensive though for that to yeah, yeah. make sense. A lot has to change. But it's changing on some level. So there is probably some point where there's an inflection point. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And then and are there things we can do with a peak implant that we can't do with other materials that are really very exciting about that, specifically that material? Oh, very. Yeah, there's some really exciting things you can do. Um, the other thing that which we haven't talked about yet is uh, peak is compatible with a broad range of additives both structural and bioactive. So one thing that you can do with uh, Peak, for example, is uh, one company is has commercialized medical grade Peak filament that contains uh, calcium phosphate, uh, which is intended to promote bone growth. So you could print that. So that's one way we talked about, you can make the Peak implant porous to encourage boning growth. Or you can print it solid, but just have the material itself has enough calcium phosphate loaded into it uh, to promote the bone uh, bone attachment to the implant. Or and that's both. something that you can't really do with titanium. Uh, you can add stuff to it, you can coat it, you can do stuff like that, but you can't. It's not really the same as kind of blending it with the material. Yeah, no, I think that kind of stuff is really exciting from an additive viewpoint, and also from a degradation or feeding or adding medical compounds that kind of I don't know whatever help the healing process. I think that could be really exciting as well, like actually exactly. like mixing it in with the polymer, you know? Exactly, yeah. and and then I mean with peak, it's a little bit challenging because it would have to be it has to be something that will survive kind of the nozzle temperatures, you know, uh, over three hundred degrees, three to four hundred degrees. Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of really interesting biological molecules will really don't like to be brought over a hundred C. Right. <laughs> okay, we put it in because it's porous anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we, we can we can kind of inject it afterwards. I think after annealing, maybe, and then that that might be, would work. So for me, you're you're tu you're you're touching in on what makes Pakes really exciting to at least for me to do research on implant technology is. That it is, shall we say, the the platform for a broad range of different composites, structural and and that's kind of almost all of my academic research right now. Like three D printing peak, yeah, that was my previous PhD's research. But kind of going forward from here, uh, there's no real. I don't think there's a whole lot more need for academic research uh, on how three D printing of peak works. I think it's pretty well understood at this point. It's for me the exciting part, at least for me and for and for our group, uh, and for us the exciting thing is like what happens. How do you three D print carbon fiber composites and out of with Peak? And since we mentioned that Peak is is really, um, shall we say, the most challenging of members of the is a very challenging molecule to three D print. Why even stick with Peak? The only reason we're dealing with Peak 
in the first place was because it was it's well established and it was really well suited for the manufacturing processes uh, like injection molding and extrusion and compression molding and the like. Uh, there are molecules like cousins of Peak. Um, Victrix makes one. Uh, there's Peck uh, as well. These these are are tailored to have or either tailored or happen to have uh, crystallization rates uh, that are uh, much more amenable to FFF. And like with PEC is also fundamentally unsuited for uh, powder bed fusion technologies because of the crystallization behavior we talked about, right? It's not, it's, you can make it work, but it's not going to be economical due to the the powder is not easily uh recycled so, you can't recycle any of it <laughs> yeah it's, it's, economically, it's basically economically unviable right, right? Just, yeah. unless you would like theoretically print like the entire build or something or like uh, exactly or like, or like exactly. reduce it to nearly nothing so but but peck you can absolutely uh sls peck uh, and you can also, uh, Victrex also has a, a PAEK that is SLSable. Uh, I don't know if that's even, a, I just kind of made up some jargon there. Powder bed fusionable. Powder bed fusionable, exactly. So there, that's, that's a new avenue of, of, of work. SLS of PEC is not new, right? Because you can buy an EOS machine that will uh, off the shelf print PEC. There's a, a you know medical device company that is based on it's entirely based on powder bed fusion of pack right so, so oh, that's Oxford Performance Materials right exactly so or we'll just call it OPM for short so the the idea that I mean additive of PAKES is is here and it's happening happening really really regularly. I love the printability of like the capstan, for example, that's a and seven thousand, eight thousand series, like um uh that's Arkema material, right? I love it. Uh, compared to like, you know, first using with the other peak grades, it's beautiful. Uh, As I like to say, like in my in my lab, uh anytime uh we have to print in peck, the students are smiling. <laughs> anytime we have to print in peak. There are no, there aren't very many happy faces. In the <laughs> That's so true. Dude. Fair enough. Right? There's there's nozzles getting clogged. There's all kinds of foolishness going on with things not working out the way you expected. I mean, it's it's different, right? In a university lab, you're doing kind of weird and crazy things all the time and trying things out for the first time. If you're in a production situation, you iron all those things out for peak. So if you're in the job of making peak cages with FFF. You tune it in to the parameters that work and you just press print and it'll print all day without hassle, right? But it's like when you're doing discovery work or or uh, trying to print something for the first time, generally, PEC prints pretty well for the first time you're doing something. So uh, peak, you may need a couple tries to get it to work. Yeah, exactly. No, it's difficult material. I'm, but I'm you also curious. pointed out like these, these CF and GF loaded materials, which also sometimes, especially if you're printing a larger thing, are also much easier. And do you see those like because there's problems of using these kind of materials in the body as well? But do you do you see these kind of reinforced materials? Is, is that a you mentioned them before? But do you really see a big future for that if we sort out 
you know, how to get nice fibers that aren't like harmful. Uh, do you see that as a kind of a, a way to do right? I mean, and by composite, I mean, we're talking about structural composites. I think, I mean, there mm-hmm. are companies that are based on carbon fiber reinforced peak. Carbon fiber reinforced peak is used as a replacement for metal and trauma implants. There are a couple of companies that are dedicated to carbon fiber peak implants for trauma for the most part like fracture plates, intermedullary nails, screws. Again, also, especially if you're going to be doing plating around a cancer-treated bone, you don't want to have something in there that's going to potentially complicate any kind of radiation treatment or Mm -hmm. uh, you want to be able to see what's going on, all that kind of stuff. I'm not entirely sure I'd be too thrilled to have carbon fiber in my body, actually. (laughs) No way. It's it's the hip new thing for your hip. Carbon fiber, it turns out, is just as biocompatible. I mean, we're a carbon-based life form, so come on. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Every time somebody says to me, like, it's natural, I say that I tell them that uranium is also natural. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But carbon is... It's a dose. (laughs) No, people have looked at carbon... The idea of carbon reinforced uh, or carbon loaded implants is not new, right? So um, there, people have been using uh, carbon fiber reinforced uh, bearing surfaces and the like for for quite a long for quite a long time. I'm I'm curious about how the new softwares are impacting some of this and that, like you know, and and topology and that that kind of stuff, where you can do these interior surfaces like. The, the pitting of a bone, for example, is that helpful in this at this point or not? Oh, is absolutely. That like, I love Antop. Um, <laughs> you know, that's so too I bad have, for them, but you know, like that, that whole branch, I guess, of, of right. So, new- like, I, th- I think if you're gonna, if you're gonna be, so in my design class for point of care, we spend half of it teaching kind of how to go from, uh, you know, patient specific anatomy to a device and then tailoring that device with with features that are important. So the software that most people use for the first part of it to go from digital images will be either like using Mimics or D2P, um, depending on which software vendor you, you, you wanted to use. Uh, but then for like adding porosity in a really cool way, really, the, like I think Entop is or Entopology is really really quite advanced software in terms of being able to incor- easily uh, incorporate porosity into 3D printable devices. Now, the one thing I will add is that if you're going to be 3D printing lattice structures using FFF, you're, you have a, a, one additional limitation that you don't have with powder bed fusion. Uh, with powder bed fusion, you don't necessarily need to have everything be continuous and and the like with you can have stochastic uh, yeah you can have stochastic uh pores and all these kind of crazy things you you really can't do that with you know extrusion based technologies right so yeah because you have to come from somewhere yeah you have to come from somewhere right so <laughs> so we 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 do almost all of our work with uh tpms or triply periodic minimal surfaces that uh generate geometric porosity and you can, uh, and that was another one of our, one of my PhD students' thesis topics was kind of like how do you tune that, uh, and what design parameters are important for bone and growth surfaces if you're going to do that in peak. Uh, and then another thing with like peak is is the other thing is like I've been reading about that there's always I, I 
uh, it took a couple months to read about all these implant failures and stuff. Uh, super fun. Uh, and, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I learned a lot from that actually. And uh, a lot of stuff that went wrong with packaging, a lot of stuff with sterilization as well. So what's it like with like the sterilization of these implants and how, how to sterilize them in an office environment? So right now, but also in a hospital type of thing, like you need to be, you know, you need to be able to produce that thing sterile. You know, is it, do you think that's an advantage of peak or is that a bit of a limitation or? Well, I mean, peak is uh, peak like um, like the metal components is autoclavable, so uh, it's easily sterilized in a in a hospital setting. So it's it's reason it's reasonably it's reasonably feasible to well, it is feasible because people are doing it right. Where you print, uh, you clean up the uh, clean up the print uh, and label it, clean it, package it, sterilize it, and walk it up to the op- the operating room. That's all. That's all doable in a hospital setting. And we, we've been talking a lot about peak because yeah, this is really cool material. Everybody wants to know about it all the time. But you also have done some research on ultra high molecular weight polyethylene, right? Yes. Which is a super not so well known uh, material. Which uh, I know HDP. That's I think the stuff that garden chairs are made out of. And uh, this ultra weight stuff, I know that because it's Dyneema is made out of it. Those are like kind of. Kind of well, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna be confusing, but these kind of. Well, let's say they're called them bullet resistant kind of fiber really tough fibers are made of that material but to tell us a little bit about this because this sounds like a, it's it's really an area that not a lot not enough people are looking at what's right yeah ultra high molecular polyethylene um is kind of the another one of those super polymers that kind of defies the normal logic of kind of the the typical garden variety thermopolymers that we use every day, right? With high density polyethylene or polypropylene, those are pretty amenable to injection molding. But with with ultra high, its molecular weight is is two to six million. And so when the chains are really that long, it it doesn't really flow anymore, right? So it, it basically just turns translucent. So the way you you make anything out of it is is really limited to taking powder, heating it up, waiting for time for there to be diffusion of the molecules across the grain boundaries, and then cooling it back down. Basically, just as they like to say in the business, uh, just pressure, heat, and time are is what you need to consolidate polyethylene, and then everything is essentially machined out of that. Out of rods and blocks, so you're you're very limited in manufacturing technology. But in its you know unsterilized, off the shelf format, it's it's incredibly tough. You can use it as, or it is used as uh, the inside of uh, you know big dump trucks. It's used as bumpers for tugboats. Uh, it's used uh, in bottling lines because it has very low friction and high impact resistance. And all those qualities have kind of led it to be used in implants since the, I think it was first started to be used in the 1960s. So we're still using it today in different forms. And what makes ultra high such an enduring uh, material, uh, and I say it shares this characteristics with Peak, is that researchers have been able to modify it to make it even better and more specific uh, for use in implant applications. So people have figured out how to cross-link it. Uh, so you get more, you know, better wear resistance in, in patients. And now there are different technologies for stabilizing it, first with heat treatment and now with 
antioxidants like vitamin E to limit oxidation in the human body. So people have done, I mean, over the last, it's not like people had the material for 60 years and have done nothing with it. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of evolution of the material to where it gets to. And, and Peak also, uh, and PAC and the other PAICs also have that ability for someone to uh, tailor them uh, either by blending them with different additives or by uh, surface modification to kind of get what you, what you want to do out of them. Yeah. And then of course the logical thing would be for you to successfully print this material, right? Uh, but that's a bit, a diff, a bit difficult. I understand. <laughs> well, it is, right. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't really extrude very well. Um, and uh, there are, you'd have to kind of go to the bottom end of the ultra high range, like a million molecular weight um, for it to be, or maybe like, 800,000 molecular weight for it to be able to, to flow uh, uh, at heat uh, at, when you raise, raise it above its melt transition. What's its melt transition? Around 135. Yeah, it's low. It's what, very low. 135C? That's really low. Yeah. Yeah, it's very low. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> But it, I think there was one paper at one point of somebody like sintering under pressure or something like that. Like they had kind of done it, but I, I really think it's one of these materials that kind of escapes us. It's kind of beyond grass for a long time. There was polyamide, but now we can print polyamide. But, but uh, you know, this, this, this is one of the materials where I would love to see somebody 3d print this. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it would, it would be a different formulation than what's been traditionally used uh, in joints that are made with kind of traditional Ram extrusion and the like, but. And um, and there's another thing I think that we uh, that you've done a couple of papers on like this whole idea of revisions and revisions of surgery, and this is something that people maybe not notice. It's probably not something that people want to talk about a lot, but there's an incredible amount. I said I read at one point, not in one of your papers, in a different one. I think it's like four to seven percent of, of uh, orthopedic procedures require revision surgery or something like this. Yeah, that that number has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I like I like to say that um, when people ask me how long a, a traditional orthopedic implant will last, I'd say you know between ninety and ninety five percent of those procedures should last ten years. But but things change; your body changes over time, um, and you may use the implant in ways that it wasn't really expected to be used uh, uh, for twenty or thirty years, like. If you want to do base jumping or other <laughs> really high impact things, right? I mean, these are right. engineering structures. They don't have infinite lifetime for an infinite variety of different uh, patient activities. But I mean, they can become infected. Uh, they, I mean, there's all they can become mechanically loose. There's a whole bunch of reasons why implants don't last forever, and they they need to get revised. And revision surgery is uh, is pretty much a routine uh, surgery done regularly, uh, thousands of times a year, uh, tens of thousands of times a year in the United States, because there are again, right? If you put in a million devices, you're going to have you know tens of thousands of revisions right. done every year. Are they, um, they taking out the implant and putting in a new one when you, exactly. when you say revision? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. and the the problem is with the revision is that. Well, there are many different types of revision, but the ones, the parts of revision that are are difficult 
are uh, and that are more amenable to 3D printing are when you have to take out the implant, but in addition to having to take out the implant, you have to take out a lot of bone, right? And so you're mm, left with less bone grown around it. Yeah, grown around it, and this this can happen quite a lot in the pelvis, where after you've had like if it becomes infected and the infection eats away at enough of the bone, it becomes difficult to to they have to remove all the infected bone to the best that they can, or if you fall and your implant breaks the bone around it as well. Right, it, it, you could have a, a fracture around the, the implant that could be very difficult to to treat uh, over time. So there there are situations where you have to do revision surgery. You don't have a lot of bone left, and a standard implant off the shelf isn't really going to be uh, useful. And either you build one out of Legos, uh, or <laughs> or and, and revision surgeries surgeons do that now. Are they like cutting apart pieces and then just kind of gluing them together, so to speak? No, they like revision implants now are are basically engineered to be like multiple Lego blocks. So, oh, so have, they really are snapping together pieces to yeah. Are they like they'll like they'll drill like they'll put a cone in the part of the bone that has a defect and then try to cement in the cone uh, and install the implant in the cone and like the. the it sounds very hacky. Well, no, that's what surgeons do. They they yeah, make, yeah, yeah. It make it work. Stuff. They make it work all day, every day, right? That's their job. Yeah, but orthopedic surgeons are very kinesthetic, by the way. They love this stuff. Yeah, they, <laughs> they love making stuff. Really, they do. They make it work. They're really good with it. Really good with their hands. I know a bunch of orthopedic surgeons that when they retire, they take up furniture making. Mm. One of my Probably. one of my good friends uh, took up boat making. He decided to build himself a boat. I mean, it's like why not? He converted his barn to a boat shed and started making Super making nice. boats. So, so wait, wait, wait. It's just to jump back on. To, you know, you're talking about infections, for example, is one of the things. Couldn't we, in a in an FFA world, can't we embed like I don't want to say like I mean, antibiotics or some anti you know something to help prevent infections per se in the material? You think, but I would say yeah. infection is the last really seriously unsolved problem in orthopedics because there is not an easy, straightforward, predictable path, uh, regulatory pathway to kind mm. of get it on the market. The regulatory yeah. pathway for an implant, an anti-infection implant is fraught with difficulty. How to uh, prove it. Right. Yeah. And also, and it's you have to approve it twice, right? And and you get the problem with it. It had with the stents as well, right? That that yeah, that one of the two didn't work, and then it was a big disaster, right? The the FDA is really concerned about uh, resistance uh, for any type of implant. That's well, and first of all, just backing up, right? If you're going to do an anti-infective implant, if it's going to have drugs, right? That's literally going to involve. Uh, it's it's going to be a drug device combination product, which is much more, I won't say even more. Yeah, no, no, no. Right, it's already right. five to ten years to do an implantable device. Is it like twenty years to do? No one's signing up for that. Trust me. Yeah, no, okay. The world with declining reimbursements and um, <laughs> all these pressures on cost, no one is signing up for doing that kind of of research. And so that's why infection remains a major issue. Uh, that you know, I. We spend a lot of time and energy working on. No, yeah. so having added having an additive um, 
in your device that can address infection is is really is really quite is really quite useful. We're working with uh, uh, with a company called uh, Syntex and have a couple of NIH grants. This is all public, uh, but the silicon nitride has uh, in vitro shown that they can have some bacterial resistance, and if you can take that nanopowder and blend it with peak or pack and 3D print it. And so that's kind of one of our uh, research projects we're working on as a way of trying to make an implant that can help address infection. So that's... That's good because I, I told people cool. like that, that, that one of the things to look out for is like coatings of these implants. And yeah, imagine trying to get these kind of coatings. There's silver and other coatings already on, on a lot of these implants, right? But imagine having a coating that you could just make a lot of these implants a little bit better at infection uh, resistance, that kind of thing. That would be that would just be huge for 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 the industry. I think. I completely agree. If you could ever get the technology through the FDA. Yeah, 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 yeah totally, totally. And then there's another thing I want to like say is like we talked about this a couple of times about this. There's more people living longer, so now you have two implants, or you have it for much longer in 15 years instead of seven, and people have more active lifestyles, right? Does that also change implant design? You were talking about base jumping. Are you are implant designers saying, wait a minute, we need kind of like more of a heavy duty kind of setup for? People that are that are just like going to have much more more active you know, or active stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what what needs to happen more is that um, you know the expectations of a patient that gets these types of devices. Do they just need to understand that? Yeah, you you can get like the the modern implants today will allow you like to to do a lot of activities that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to do maybe with the total joint replacements of 20 or 30 years ago. Now with these implants, yeah, you can play sports. You can, you can play golf. You could, you could ski. Well, you can ski. People ski with these things all the, all, all the time. Should you ski? Will your device last as long if you ski uh, than if you don't ski? Mm -hmm. Those are really questions that are more about, um, more about kind of what is important to you in your life. Like if you really, if you love skiing and skiing is really important to you, then being able to ski for another five years uh, is is worth it, even if you have to take have a revision surgery, right? Hey, Steve, thank you so much for being here today. This is great. Oh, thank you. It's been fun talking about peak and polyethylene and infection topics that we're spending a lot of time thinking about. Okay, awesome. And uh, Max, thank you for being here as always. Always fascinating. Thank you for hosting, George. And thank you for listening. Uh, this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and uh, you have yourself a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.